I don't know how it affects you, but when I see all that the Hines family is going through, I just get kind of a sinking feeling. My, my, my. You know, these people have been such faithful warriors for so long. How wonderful it is, though, to see that they're not quitters, but continue to persist on and serve God as the Lord would lead them. You know, what would God have spoken today? That's always a challenge for me. I don't want to just get up and give a talk. Sometimes the things that I feel God impresses on me to to give are not easy, and yet I cannot deny that He has given them. Have you ever noticed the difference between the Gospel of John and the first letter of John? Both of these were written toward the end of his life. And if you'll notice, as John closes out his Gospel, he says, These things are written that you may believe. But then he also says, The one who writes these things is the one who saw them, he heard them, and I personally am a witness to all that I testify. And John could write that and be convincing because many of the people who read what he wrote were people that knew him and knew his history. And they know this man knows what he is talking about. And when he began the writing of his first epistle... He said, this one, I saw him, I heard him, I handled him. And it's interesting that the Greek term that is rendered handle him is spelafao, which means this is like a blind man who fumbles an object to try to identify it. Now John was addressing a, a heresy that was starting to rise in the church in his day. That heresy was a Gnostic heresy, and it's a rather strange one, but the Greek philosophy of Gnosticism began to arise and say, all things were created by a single being. That makes sense, doesn't it? And he was called the Autopater, and he had a thought, and every thought he had was a noose, and every noose that had a thought produced another noose. And so noose and noose and noose, but all was spirit. And one day a noose named Sophia had a thought, and her noose, instead of producing another thought, created physical matter. And in time he found himself in competition with the autopater. And so the Gnostic heresy began to say, Anything that is spirit is essentially good. Anything that is physical is essentially bad. Therefore, Jesus could not have come in the flesh. You think you saw him? It was a hologram. John says, baloney. (laughs) I saw him. I heard him. I fumbled him. It's the real thing. And so as he closes his gospel and begins his first letter, he assures all the readers that everything that he says is true, and he can personally testify to it, and the importance of that very correct doctrine. 
And then you will notice the way chapter, the next to last chapter of John ends. He said, I've written all of these things that you might believe and know what to believe. That's why he wrote his gospel. So we would know what to believe and because of the validity of his testimony, we can believe it. But now you will notice as you begin to read 1 John, he says, 1 John, this epistle was written so you can be sure you have eternal life. Think of that. The first one was written to tell you what to believe. The second one was written, do you really believe your beliefs? Does your life manifest what would be manifested by one who truly believes? And so throughout this epistle of 105 verses, 19 different times he states something that is an evidence of the fact that you have eternal life. We don't have time for all of these this morning. But here are the ones I felt the Holy Spirit has caused me to highlight today. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he says, Brethren, try every spirit. There are many false prophets that have gone out into the world, and every spirit that denies that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. He says, that's not of God, that is from the Antichrist. And so the very first thing that we want to highlight this morning, how can I know that I have eternal life? Are you following correct doctrine or something presented by a false prophet? Nothing is more serious in this world than to be the elder of a local church. Remember as Paul addressed the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he said, Shepherd the flock of God over which he has made you overseers. And then this warning, and there will arise among your own selves, be wary for them, who will be drawing away disciples after them. And there's a responsibility of the elders as shepherds of that flock to watch out for all kinds of false heresy that would draw the people away. You who have been in this church for around 40 years or so know that we have fought some tremendous battles here over these kinds of issues. Now, Chuck Farah was banned from the local Presbyterian churches because he departed from the cessationist view and took the position that the Holy Spirit was still active today as he was in New Testament times. Bill Sanders was fired from the Brookside Baptist Church because they learned that in his private devotions he prayed in tongues. And so he was fired because he was no longer a cessationist, departed from the Baptist view. In my case, <laughs> boy, did I face some things. I'd help part of a team that had planted several churches in northeastern Oklahoma. And when I became convinced biblically not by experience, but biblically, that the Holy Spirit is supposed to continue in every generation as in the beginning. I was no longer welcome in any of those pulpits. For years, I'd been teacher and dean and manager of the church camp. I was banned from coming on the church grounds. On and on it went. 
But I thank God for the charismatic movement which brought back to life the truth that the Holy Spirit is still active. But sadly, with that movement, the door was opened to all kinds of strange things. And I cannot imagine or estimate or even remember all of them with which we have had to deal in this church. One of the main ones was strange things happening with the worship team. One time there was a man Sunday morning in the midst of worship, got up, started running around the auditorium. All of a sudden people started following him. Now at that time all the elders sat on the front row as the authority in the body. And the worship leader shouted, Come on elders, lead! The elders were leading. <laughs> they were modeling the proper reverence and attitude that one should have in a service dedicated to God. One Sunday, this leader rebuked Bruce and me because we were bowing our heads. Something was terribly wrong. <laughs> and so the elders began to wonder. Matter of fact, let me say, dear Gordon was personally wounded at one point by one of these. So the elders said, we need to know where all of this infection is coming from. So they sent Barbara and me to a conference in O'Fallon, Missouri, where all the worship team was going, not sent but on its own. So Barbara and I sat listening. The main speaker, the man who was kind of over it all, got up and he allegorized the Song of Solomon chapter by chapter by chapter. You know when you're allegorizing, you can make it mean anything you want to. I thought, what horrible exegesis. And then the second speaker got up. He was from Australia. He said, oh, listen to the accent of this man. That accent answer his anointing. And he said, as Abraham had the filthy foreskin removed, so with holiness he could thrust himself into Sarah. So God circumcises us. And Jesus plays the part of a woman gambling across the meadow. And we run and grab him and thrust ourselves into him. And he delights with the pleasure so received. We had a break and I went to the room of the worship team. Dear brothers and sisters, do you realize this is heresy? This is blasphemy. And one of them sarcastically said to me, Oh, we're so glad you're here to tell us. They obviously resented my presence. But the elders had to take a strong stand on that issue. And approximately a third of the church left when the worship team left and took people with them. But the elders were fulfilling the responsibility God has given them to shepherd the flock and watch for wolves and fight the battle, whatever the price. And in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he says, Try every spirit, for there are many prophets that have gone out into the world. And he's addressing the heresy that the church was facing in his time. Any spirit that denies that Jesus came in the flesh, he said, that's the Antichrist, that's not God. And so from generation to generation, Satan has brought forth this false teaching and this heresy. 
And oh, what a burden the elders have to protect a flock because someday elders will stand before God and give answer for how well they fulfill that responsibility. This church is so fortunate to have the men of God we have who stand as shepherds over this church. Now, I do not include myself in that. I'm not an elder. I've never been ordained one, but I sit with the elders. <laughs> I think my role has been that which Paul wrote to Titus, remain in Crete to set in order what remains. That perhaps is my role then. Now I just sit with the brothers and submit to them and do whatever they ask me to do. Matter of fact, a while back, God said to me one day, take your hands off, and I have. Thank God for the elders who shepherd this flock. Another element John writes in 1 John is this. He who keeps my commands loves me. He who loves me has eternal life. And then we'll notice he also wrote, if we keep the commandments of God, that's one way we show we love the brethren. And you will notice time and time again as you read that epistle, that's a theme, love for one another, love for one another. Let's think about that a little bit. What does it mean to love a brother or a sister in the way God means? Well, you who have read the Dulos Principle are aware that some years ago we wrote on the topic of the four Greek words for love. The word storge, the noun storgeo, the verb, refers to familial love, the love that exists in a biological family, especially between parents and child. What a blessed love that is. Second is phile, or phileo of the verb. And that means affection, fraternity. This is what you and I feel for one another. It's an emotional thing. Third one is Eros. Has an interesting history. There was a Greek god named Eron, and those who worshipped Eron got caught up in ecstasy, and that ecstasy became called Eros. And whenever anyone was worshiping in any temple other than Iran, and he became ecstatic. The leader said, ah, Iran is stealing worship. Because ecstasy meant Iran was being worshipped. Eros was taking place. And out of that came the word, finally the word eros, which refers to sexual pleasure, any kind of romantic feelings. And the fourth of these is agape. Agapa, agapel is the verb. And it's totally different. Emotion may or may not be present. It is not necessary. It is one directional. It is a love of action. For instance, in John 3.16, we read, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And the way we tend to read that in English, it means this is how much he loved us. God so loved. But that's not what the Greek says at all. It begins with the word hutos, omicron, upsilon, tau, omega, sigma, which means 
in this manner. <laughs> in this manner, he loved, he gave. It's an action, you see. Agape does not require emotion. As a matter of fact, your personality and your temperament may rub me the wrong way. And I may not even like you. But I can still agape you, you see. That's important for us to remember in the body of Christ. Agape, agape, agape. And forgiveness. Forgiveness is such an action of agape, isn't it? Even if I don't feel forgiving, I will forgive you. I will bless you. I will affirm you. I will do all I can and harbor nothing against you, even though I still am wounded. Remember, as Jesus gave us the model prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And then the next part really was not in the original prayer. It was added later on liturgically, but Jesus ended it right there. And then he went on to say, For if you do not forgive trespasses done against you, your heavenly Father will not forgive your trespasses. That's sobering, isn't it? That's sobering. That if I do not live with agape love expressed in forgiveness, I don't have much hope in eternity. But John says, having that assures you that eternal life dwells within you. I believe that that principle, that truth is going to be very important for us in Tulsa. From May the 26th to June the 6th, the memorial of that horrible 1921, really, massacre. I went to work for the Katy Railroad in January 1st, 1949. I was 18 years old, and you had to join the union to be a work for the railroad, and you had to be 21 to join the union unless a parent would sign a permission slip. So my mother signed a permission slip enabling me to join the union and go to work when I was 18 years old. Now, when I went to work for the railroad, there were men working there that had worked 30-some, 40 years, getting close to retirement. And my, what stories some of them had to tell, especially some of the trainmen. And those who had been employed in 1921, one trainman sped, when we went through Tulsa, for many, many days, we could stop to get water at the water tower for a locomotive, but we could not let anybody get off the train, we could not let anybody get on the train, and when possible, we just had to pass through without stopping. And then he said, and I actually saw bodies stacked. What a horrible thing to think that had happened in this city. For 10 days, the eyes of this nation, perhaps on the world, are going to be focused on Tulsa. It's going to be a time in which there will be people pouring out vitriol, hatred, resentment. 
Whatever you hear, whatever I hear, whatever circumstance in which we find ourselves, let's be especially careful during those 10 days to have agape toward everyone. Forgiveness and pray that all who claim the name of Jesus will have the same thing in their hearts. And today, frankly, I'm hearing some who claim themselves to be Christians who are doing just the opposite. But I will not judge them. I can only care for myself to make sure I have eternal life. <laughs> and in one way I know that is that I live with forgiveness, agape love, to all who are about me. John says another way that you can know that you have this eternal life dwelling within because he's given us the Spirit. Now it's interesting, isn't it? The role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Ephesians 1, for instance, and also in 1 Corinthians, says the Holy Spirit is given... King James says, as an earnest, it's a guarantee. If I have the Holy Spirit in me, I, it's a guarantee that heaven is mine. It's as if you're buying a house for $100,000 and you have to go to the bank to get a loan, but right now all you have is 1000 so you give, take this $1,000, that's earnest money, and within a week I'll have the rest. And it's a guarantee to him that you will have the rest. That's the way that's used in Ephesians. The Holy Spirit given to me is earnest. It's a guarantee that heaven is mine. How do I know I have the Holy Spirit? For many years when I was still a cessationist, I would say I have the Holy Spirit because the Bible says I do. Matter of fact, on the day of Pentecost, Peter said, be immersed, repent, and be immersed to every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, I did that, so I've got it. That doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? But that's the view I held for many years until I came to realize that's really what, not what Paul is talking about. It has to be something I know I have in order to know that heaven is mine. How can I know? Not tongues. Paul writing to 1 Corinthians, you know, they, some of them were one to forbid tongues in the morning service. And Paul said, wait a minute, just because the people worshiping Iran speak in tongues doesn't mean those who are filled with the Holy Spirit can't speak in tongues. Those who are speaking by the Holy Spirit will not blaspheme Christ. So there's a difference between the Spirit given in Iran and the Spirit given by the Holy Spirit. But later on, you notice as he concludes those three chapters, 12, 13, and 14, he speaks to everyone and everybody who had the Spirit, and he said, some speak in tongues, some don't. Some prophesy, some don't. Some interpret, some don't. There is no blanket statement about any of these things that all of us have them. Tongues is not the guarantee. What is the guarantee? The only answer I know to give is in Galatians where Paul says the fruit of the Spirit. 
If you read the King James, it's love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, goodness, kindness, faith, and self-control. New American Standard, New NIV use different words, but they're all synonyms. By the way, it's interesting, the King James, the next to last one, says faith. NAS says faithfulness. And I pondered, which is it? Is it faith, which is belief and trust? Or is it meaning you can count on me? <laughs> the word is pistis. As I began to research that word in various pieces of literature, predominantly it always means trust or faith. Now, a couple of spots where it possibly means faithfulness. One is describing a high priest. He is the pistis high priest. So does that mean he's a faithful high priest? Possibly so. So the word might mean faithful, but rarely is it ever used that way. It usually means faith, but so what? <laughs> God someday will work that out, I'm sure. But the last one's so important, isn't it? Self-control. Self-control. I will not be ruled by emotionalism. I'll not be ruled by lust. The only thing that I want to rule me is my Lord Jesus Christ. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. By the way, we sometimes say the nine fruits of the Spirit. No, 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 no. It's one. The fruit of the Spirit. The difference. Well, take an orange tree. What's the fruit of an orange tree? Well, Colored orange, we get that's the name we've given it. But it has kind of a dimple outside. You open it, there are membranes separating it off. Squeeze it, wonderful juice. Jonathan apple tree. Well, here's an apple, not as big as some. Dark red skin, not as dark as some. Open it up, there's white meat seeds in the middle. Difference between the orange fruit, the apple fruit. What kind of a tree did it come from? The fruit of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is truly dwelling in me, gradually over the years, that fruit will grow. For instance, if you plant a Mississippi soft shell pecan tree, it will not produce pecans for 10 years, <laughs> that fruit. And for me, the fruit of the Holy Spirit in me, over the years, has gradually, 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 gradually begun manifesting those things that I pray, I pray, will characterize my life in an increasingly way. I think of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the, trans, uh, by the renewing your mind that you may prove what is the perfect and acceptable will of God. The word prove doesn't mean I'm going to prove it to you. My brother-in-law, Cy Schwiller, after retiring as a full colonel from the Air Force, having worked in teaching, he was a nuclear physicist teaching at Los Alamos and engineers that were building the bombs and so on. After he retired, he worked for Congress for 14 years. He was on the Armed Services Committee. He told me about the proving grounds. He said we had one of the most absurd things happen one day. We paid a huge amount of money to a firm to build a better tank. And the tank they built operated with a turbo. And we had at the proving ground to start out and fail completely because tanks operate in dust. And that refused. He said the dumbest thing you ever saw. But it was done on the proving grounds where you 
test, not that I'm proving something to you, but in my own life I'm testing it and I'm seeing that it is real. And I can stand before you today to tell you that that renewing of the mind doesn't happen the minute you're converted. Gradually, the Holy Spirit develops in you. In those areas where it's not yet developed, then I have to consciously obey God, even though it may not be my inclination to do that at the time. But oh, how wonderful it is when the years go by and the mind is transformed, the spirit is transformed, so it becomes your instinctive response to do exactly what Jesus would do. Remember some years ago when WWJD bracelets were faithful? Remember Bruce one Sunday speaking spoke on this topic. What would Jesus do? What did he do on the cross? Oh, Father, forgive them. He had compassion. He had agape. And he had a heart. If we truly belong to Jesus, that will manifest who we are. Many of the things we could talk about in this epistle that assure us that we have eternal life. Read it. It's short, but oh, how revelatory. Thank you in Jesus' name.